Our belief in the afterlife across cultures and time usually involves some kind of utopian paradise in a kingdom among the clouds. Some call it heaven. Some call it nirvana. Whether our spirits must travel into this kingdom on our own, or if we're escorted by angels, we all hope to eventually end up in the good place. But what if birds could literally carry us to the afterlife, body and spirit? For the people living in the Tibetan plateau, it's not as crazy of an idea as you may think. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures and nations of the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you, so stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Talented Ladies Club tells us CBD can be beneficial for women to help alleviate symptoms that they face during their periods. CBD can help in controlling menstrual pain, reducing bloating, stabilizing moods, and helping ladies through that difficult time. So ladies, when you need a little extra pain relief or you have questions, contact thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. Many of you will know Tibet as the home of the highest mountain on earth, Mount Everest. Because of this, Tibet has come to be known as the roof of the world. But where exactly is Tibet? It's not a country that you probably learned about in geography class back in high school. So to clarify, Tibet is a region in China centered on the Tibetan Plateau, or the Himalayan Plateau if you find yourself on the Indian side of it. The plateau is a large elevated area that spans across Southeast, Central, and East Asia. Sandwiched between the Himalayan mountain range to the south and the Takamakan Desert to the north, Tibet resides almost entirely in the Republic of China. However, Tibet resides under what's called an autonomous region, meaning that while Tibet is still a province of China, they elect their own chairman and basically govern themselves under Chinese law. This way, the Tibetan people get to keep their ancestral homeland as well as their own traditions and customs. It wasn't always this way, and the Tibetan people have had to struggle to keep their cultural identities and still do this today. But we'll get to that later. Let's start our story a lot earlier. Back at the beginning, humans have inhabited the Tibetan Plateau for at least 21,000 years. But it wasn't until the brink of the Common Era that Tibet started to become the region that we know today. The earliest Tibetan historical texts identify the Sang-Sung culture as a people who migrated from the Amdo region into what is now the region of Guja in western Tibet. Singsung is considered to be the original home of Bahan religion, the native pre-Buddhist religion tradition in Tibet. The relationship between Bahan and Tibetan Buddhism has been a subject for debate for a very long time. Followers of Bahan, known as Bonpos, believe that the religion originated in a land called Takzig, identified by scholars variously as Tajikistan, other parts of the Persian Empire, and perhaps also the area around Mount Kalash in the west of the Tibetan Plateau. Bonpas identify 
Shinrab Minwo as Bond's founder, although there are no available sources to establish that this figure's historic, historical accuracy. The Taxig, from Taxig, Bond was brought first to Zhangzhou and then to Tibet. Western scholars have poised several origins for Bond and have used the term Bond in many ways. Tibetan Buddhist scholarship tends to cast Bond in a negative, adversarial light with derogatory stories about Bond appearing in a number of Buddhist histories. But the first century, a neighboring kingdom arose in the Yerling Valley, and the Yerling king Drigun Sempo attempted to remove the influence of the Sengtong by expelling the Zheng's Bond priest from Yarlong. He was assassinated and Zheng Song continued its dominance of the region until it was annexed by Songsen Gampo in the 7th century. Prior to Songsen Gampo, the kings of Tibet were more mythical than factual, and there is insufficient evidence of their existence. The history of a unified Tibet begins with the rule of Songsen Gampo, who lived from 604 to 650. Gampo united parts of the Yerling River Valley and founded the Tibetan Kingdom. He also brought in many reforms, and Tibetan power spread rapidly, creating a large and powerful empire. It's traditionally considered that his first wife was the Princess of Nepal. Her name was Burkutti, and she played a great role in the establishment of Buddhism in Tibet. In 640, he married the Princess Wing Chen's, who was the niece of the Chinese Emperor Taesong of the Tong, China. Under the next few Tibetan kings, Buddhism became established as the state religion, and Tibetan power increased even further over larger areas of Central Asia, while major inroads were made into Chinese territory, even reaching the Tang's capital, Chang'an, in late 763. However, Tibetan occupation of Chang'an only lasted for 15 days, after which they were defeated by Tang and its ally, the Turkic Iger Kagonet, in 17, excuse me, in 747. The hold over Tibet on the south region of Asia was loosened by the campaign of the general uh, Gozi Anshi, who tried to reopen the direct communications between Central Asia and Kashmir. By 750, the Tibetans had lost almost all of their Central Asian possessions to the Chinese. However, after Gozi Anshi defeat by the Arabs and the Horn Orlogs at the Battle of Talas in 751, the subsequent civil war was known as the Anshulan rebellion in 755. Chinese influence decreased rapidly and Tibetan influence resumed. At its height in 1780s through the seven excuse me, I keep saying 17. We're talking about much earlier. At its height in the 780s on into the 790s, the Tibetan Empire reached its highest glory when it ruled and controlled a territory that expanded over modern-day Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Burma, China, India, Nepal, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. In 821 to 822, 
Tibet and China signed a peace treaty. A bilingual account of this treaty included details of the borders between the two countries and is inscribed on a stone pillar which stands outside the Jokang Temple in Lhasa. Tibet continues as a Central Asian Empire until the mid-9th century when a civil war over succession led to the collapse of the Imperial Tibet. The period that followed is known traditionally as the Era of Fragmentation, when political control over Tibet became divided between regional warlords and tribes with no dominant centralized authority. Just when it didn't seem that things could be any more chaotic, an Islamic invasion from Bengal took place in 1206. I actually think that this is a pretty neat story, so let's take some time to jump a little deeper into it. Bhakti Arkilji, the Muslim conqueror of Bengal, under the Dali Sultanate, launched a campaign to invade Tibet in the 13th century. He was motivated by a desire to control, to control the lucrative trade between Tibet and India. Tibet was a source of the most prized possession of any army. In that time, it was horses. And Kilji was keen to secure this route and control the trade by conquering Tibet. Also, controlling Tibet would mean that he would control part of the Silk Road from China to Central Asia. After marching for 15 days through North Bengal and um, Sikkim, Kilji's army reached the Chumbi Valley in Tibet. Surprisingly, they had faced little resistance, but soon became obvious why. The Tibetans had lured Kilji and his army into a trap. The rugged Himalayan mountain passes were unfamiliar terrain to the invading army, who were more used to the sultry and humid plains of Bengal. Now, let me take a second here and say there's a huge parallel in what we're going through today with Afghanistan. I know that, that uh, the U.S. no longer occupies Afghanistan, uh, but I, our military definitely faced the same, the same issues. We were in unfamiliar mountainous territory. So the Tibetans inflicted heavy casualties on the invaders, and Kilji decided to retreat. But all along the escape route, the Tibetans continued to carry out relentless guerrilla-style attacks on the retreating army. Kilji's men were so badly defeated that the starving soldiers were forced to eat their own horses to stay alive. And remember the value of a horse at that time. On their way back to Bengal, the army passed through the plains of uh, Kampura, which is now North Bengal, while going through the territory of Kampura in the subalpine Himalayan hills, where his army crossed an ancient stone bridge on the river. The forces found the arches in the bridge to be destroyed by the Assamese, which made it difficult to cross the deep river. In a desperate attempt to reach the other side of the river at Davnak, Kilji's forces lost a large number of men and horses. It's sad to say that the 10,000-strong army that had marched into Tibet only had around 100 men returned. <laughs> now talk about some rotten luck. What do you think? I mean, that's, that's some serious military mojo going on there. Over the next several centuries, the region of Tibet would be tossed around like a hot potato between various Asian rulers, starting with the Mongol Yuan dynasty from 
1271 to 1368. The Sakya Lama, a high priest of one of the Buddhist four major schools, retained a degree of autonomy, acting as the political authority of the region, while the uh, Dapan Chen, which is another way of saying great administrator, held administrative and military power. Manga rule of Tibet remained separate from the main providences of China, but the region existed under the administration of the Yuan dynasty. If the Sakya Lama ever came into conflict with the Dupan Chen, the Dupan Chen had the authority to send Chinese troops into the region. Tibet retained nominal power over religious and regional political affairs, while the Mongols managed a structural and administrative rule over the region, reinforced by the rare military intervention. This existed as the diwadic structure under the Yuan Emperor, with power primarily in favor of the Mongols. Yuan control over the region ended with the Ming overthrow of the Yuan, as well as a revolt led against them by a man named Taya C. Tu Benyang Chub Riyal Mishan. I'm going to try that one again, okay? Let's try that because, man, that is a mouthful. Taya C. Tu Benyang Chub Riyal Mishan. Now, that's a lot. We're going to call him Situ, okay? Uh, because that's actually his first name. Sidhu founded what is called the Fengmo Pa dynasty, a dynastic regime that held sway over Tibet or parts thereof from 1354 to the early 17th century. To this day, Fengmo Pa dynasty has a special significance in Tibet as an autonomous kingdom after Yuan rule revitalized the national culture and brought about a new legislation that survived until the 1950s. Nevertheless, the Famo Group Ha had a turbulent history due to the internal family feuding and the strong localism among the noble lineages and fiefs. Its power receded after 1435 and was reduced to East Central Tibet in the 16th century due to the rise of the ministerial family of the Rimpumpa. The Rimpumpa, based in West Central Tibet, dominated politics after 1435. In 1565, they were overthrown by the, the Sangpa dynasty of Shigats, the last Tibetan royal dynasty to rule in their own name. The Sangpa dynasty expanded its power in different directions of Tibet in the following decades, and it was around this time that the first title of Dalai Lama was appointed to a man named Sonin Yatso. Dalai actually is a Mongolian translation of a Tibetan word, Yatso, meaning ocean. For a while, Tibet ruled itself under its own power until the fifth Dalai Lama, Nawang Lobsang Gayatso used his power to establish relations with the Qing dynasty of China. Lobsang was the first Dalai Lama that welded effective temporal and spiritual power over all of Tibet. 
He is often referred to simply as the Great Fifth, being the key religious and temporal leader of Tibetan Buddhism and Tibet. Those relations with the Qin Dynasty eventually led to the Qin expedition into Tibet in 1720, and expeditions that resulted in the expulsion of Oirut Mongol invaders and the majority of Tibet being incorporated into various Chinese provinces in 1728. Like the preceding Yuan dynasty, the Manchus of Qing dynasty exerted military and administrative control over the region while granting it a degree of political autonomy. The Qing commander publicly executed a number of rebels and their supporters and as in 1723 and 1728 made changes in the political structure and drew up a formal organization chart. For several decades, peace reigned in Tibet, but in 1792, the Qinglong Emperor sent a large Chinese army into Tibet to push the invading Nepalese out. This prompted yet another Qing reorganization of the Tibetan government, this time through a written plan called the 29 Regulations for Better Government in Tibet. Man, they just really didn't leave a lot for the imagination, did they? Well, the Qing military garrisons staffed with Qing troops were now also established near the Nepalese border. Tibet was dominated by the Manchus in various stages in the 18th century and the years immediately following the 1792 regulations were the peak of the Qing imperial commissioner's authority. But there was no attempt to make Tibet a Chinese providence. So I guess what I'm saying here for you guys that are listening to us in the U.S., imagine us invading Puerto Rico. <laughs> you know, it just really doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So, as the Qing dynasty weakened, its authority over Tibet also gradually declined, and by the mid-19th century, its influence was minuscule. Qing authority over Tibet had become more symbolic than real, and by the late 19th century, although in the 1860s the Tibetans still chose for reasons of their own to emphasize the emperor's symbolic authority and make it seem substantial. In 1774, a Scottish nobleman, George Bogle, traveled to Shigats to investigate prospects of trade for the East India Company. That should be a name that you should all know. His efforts, while largely unsuccessful, established permanent contact between Tibet and the Western world. However, in the 19th century, tensions between foreign powers and Tibet increased. The British Empire was expanding its territories in India and into the Himalayas, while the immigrant of, Afghan of Afghanistan and the Russian Empire were both doing likewise in Central Asia. In 1904, a British expedition to Tibet, spurred part by a fever that Russia was expanding its power in Tibet as part of the Great Game, was launched, and although the expedition initially set out with a stated purpose of resolving border disputes between Tibet and Sikkim, now Sikkim is a state in northeastern India, it, it, this turned quickly into a military invasion. The British expeditionary force consisting of mostly Indian troops quickly invaded and captured Lhasa with the Dalai Lama fleeing the countryside. 
Afterwards, the leader of the expedition, Sir Francis Young Husband, <laughs> gotta like that name, right? Because sometimes it just takes a young husband, right? So afterwards, this, this leader, Sir Francis Young Husband, negotiated the convention between Great Britain and Tibet with the Tibetans, which guaranteed the British great economic influence, but ensured the region remained under Chinese control. The Qing imperial resident, known as the Amban, publicly repudiated the treaty, while the British government, eager for friendly relations with China, negotiated a new treaty two years later known as the Convention between Great Britain and China respecting Tibet. Man, these politicians are just wordy, I'm telling you. Give a politician a pen. You just never know what's going to happen, right? The, the British agreed not to annex or interfere with Tibet in return for an indemnity from the Chinese government, while the China agreed not to permit any other foreign state to interfere with the territory or internal administration of Tibet. In 1910, the Qing government sent a military expedition of its own under, the, under Chao Erfing. Erfing was a Qing official that established direct Manchu Chinese rule and an imperial edict de deposed the Dalai Lama, who had at this point fled to British India. Erfing defeated the Tibetan military conclusively and expelled the Dalai Lama's forces from the province. His actions were unpopular, and there was a great amount of animosity against him for his mistreatment of civilians and his disregard for local culture. The Xinghai Revolution of 1912 toppled the Qing dynasty, and the last Qing troops were escorted out of Tibet. The New Republic of China apologized for their actions to the Qing and offered to restore the Dalai Lama's title. But guess what? The Dalai Lama refused any Chinese title and declared himself the ruler of an independent Tibet. In 1913, Tibet and Mongolia concluded a treaty of mutual recognition. For the next 36 years, the 13th Dalai Lama and the regents who succeeded him governed Tibet. During this time, Tibet fought Chinese warlords for control of the ethnically Tibetan areas in Zikang and Qinghai along the upper reaches of the Hansi River. And merging with control over most of the mainland, China, after the Chinese Civil War, the People's Republic of China incorporated Tibet in 1950 and negotiated the 17-point agreement with the newly enthroned 14th Dalai Lama's government, affirming the People's Republic of China's sovereignty but granting the area autonomy again. According to the CIA, yep, that CIA, the Chinese used the Dalai Lama to gain control of the military's training and its actions. In 1980, General Secretary and Reformist Hu Yobang visited Tibet and ushered in a period of social, political, and economic liberation. At the end of the decade, however, before the Tiananmen Square protest of 1989, monks of the Drep-In and Surah monasteries started protesting for independence. The government halted reforms and started an anti-separatist campaign. 
human rights organizations have been critical of Beijing and Lhasa government's approach to human rights in the region when cracking down on separatist convulsions that have occurred around the monasteries in the cities, most recently in the 2008 Tibetan unrest. Despite all of this, Tibet still stands as a central point for Asian arts, culture, and architecture. Derived from both Chinese and Indian influence, Tibet is a very holy Buddhist region. It's a central station for all four schools of Buddhism. As with all things that are Tibetan, they've even put their own spin on life after death and honoring their loved ones in passing. When it comes to Tibetan funerals, let's just say it this way, the sky's the limit. In Tibet, the bodies of friends and family that have passed are often not buried. The ground is too cold and frozen to dig much of the year, nor are they usually cremated, as that would be a waste of wood and other resources that are scarce in the Tibetan plateau. So Tibetans have come up with a way that is ingenious, and it's got this macabre, grotesque way of disposing bodies that is, is just fascinating, actually. Some will call the ceremony a bird burial, while others call it a celestial burial. But the most common name for this fascinating ritual is sky burial. Because of their belief in reincarnation, death is seen more as a transition opposed to an ending. They believe the soul moves on from the body at the very instant of death, leaving very little room for attachment to the physical body after death. In fact, in order for the soul of the person to have an easy transition into their next life, the Tibetans believe there should be no trace left of the physical body after death, providing another advantage for this practice. For Buddhists in Tibet and Mongolia, offering their bodies to vultures or birds is the last great and honorable thing that they can do. It's an offering of generosity back to the earth that gave them life. I think that's kind of poetic. With sky burial, there is no need to disturb the land or to bury the body. This also expresses a value for the environmental protection. When a Tibetan person dies, the family lights butter lamps beside the deceased while the monks pray and give blessings over the body for three to five days. During this time, the body can't be touched. The funeral day is determined by divination. <laughs> family members and relatives do not attend the funeral. Instead, they stay home and pray. Villagers take the body to the sky burial site by horse or car. The master of the sky burial ceremony performs rituals over the body. Then he burns incense and sampa. Sampa is like this barley mixture. And uh, you'll see it a lot in, in, the culture, in this culture. So these burnings summon the vultures. And in no time, birds begin to circle over the site. The master proceeds to chop the body into small pieces and makes way for the feasting to happen. If the vultures consume the entire body, it's supposed to be a good sign. Tibetan folk custom believes that even vultures will not want to consume a human's body if he or she has done evil deeds in their life. In Tibet, there are other ways to bury bodies after death, including water burial, cremation, and burial in the ground. 
sky burial is still the most common, though people who have died from leprosy or infectious diseases aren't given a uh, sky burial for fear of harming the vultures. Instead, they're buried in the ground or they're cremated. Sky burial sites are found all over P Tibet, but please keep this in mind if you ever to visit Tibet and might want to observe one of these ceremonies, sky burial is a private matter, so we don't encourage or recommend people to go to sky burial sites to take pictures unless you're invited by friends or family. Please remember that the greatest of respect needs to be shown during a sky burial. The most famous places for sky burials are the monasteries of Beijing and Ganden in central Tibet and Lair Ringa Buddhist Institute near Serta in Kamyum. But the vultures shouldn't be the only ones who get to feast. So let's all flock over to our kitchens while I'll walk you through this week's recipe. Tibetan sweet rice. It's called uh, Dreyas Seal in Tibet. And it's most often served on special occasions throughout the year, though it's also an important dish that most Tibetans eat first thing in the morning on the first day of the new year. For a little added creaminess, Many Tibetans add homemade butter from female yaks. And here's how we do it. Two cups of basmati rice cooked per the package instructions. Six tablespoons of unsalted butter cut into small pieces. One half cup of cashew nuts. They can be whole or halves, it doesn't matter. You can use unsalted. I used cashews with sea salt when I made this recipe. One apple peeled and diced. I used a large honeycut crisp apple, half a cup of raisins, half a cup of dried dates, a quarter cup of granulated white sugar. When rice when the rice is done and it's still hot, then stir in the butter, the sugar, the cashews, the raisins and dates, and any other dried fruit that's being used if you have something else that you want to throw in there. Now, how fast was this? Put that hot rice in a bowl and enjoy it with some good sweet tea, or po cha, which is a very common Tibetan butter tea. I hope I made this recipe simple enough for you guys. <laughs> so it's a super simple yet very tasty compliment to any meal, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, which was co-written and researched by Nellie Grace, edited and produced by Producer Pete. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Mark 2314323, and I think that that's his real last name, who said, what amazing content. I wish I had learned about this podcast sooner. Exactly what he says it is and more. Mark, your support drives the show, and we really enjoy hearing from you. We enjoy hearing from all of you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. Make sure to drop us a like, give us a five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay up to date on the latest episodes. And until next time, stay lively.